Very much looking forward to sharing with you this morning. Uh, Jeff, Pastor Jeff, our normal pastor, if you're not, uh, if you're new here, yeah, Pastor Jeff is a regular pastor. I get the opportunity to fill in for him. Uh, he's down in uh, Calvary Chapel, South Bay, filling in down there today. So I was excited to hear about the opportunity to share with you guys at the close of the year and really an opportunity to remind us to look back at what God has done, uh, to learn from it, to press on, and thus the title of the message today in 1 Timothy 4, Persevering in These Latter Days. Uh, this is uh, kind of an opportunity, like I said, to, you know, as much as I'm not a fan of New Year's resolutions, it's one of those things where I feel like, uh, you know, it's like Monday morning, people always put things off till tomorrow or till New Year's or whatever, and I figure if there's a resolution to be made, then make it, you know, what do you need New Year's for? But at the same time, I know we, uh, us people, tend to be forgetful. We tend to need things to remind us, uh, to remember what God has done, what God is doing, uh, where we need to grow, what mistakes we've made, what we can learn from. And um, there's a, something in Scripture called an Ebenezer Stone. Anybody know what that is? Have you heard of Ebenezer Stone? I'm not about, talking about Ebenezer Scrooge, even though we just got through that season. Ebenezer's stone is a stone that Samuel set up in 1 Samuel 7, verse 12. Excuse me, I'm just getting over a cough, so you're going to have to bear with me this morning. Uh, it says, Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and he named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. And it means a stone of help. And this was a time where Israel had just been defeated a few times, and then they just experienced victory. And they had wandered from the Lord and suffered the consequences and then returned to the Lord and seen Him deliver. And in both the defeat and the victory, they had learned a lot. And this stone was set up by Samuel to be something that they could look at and remember what they learned, remember what God had done. It was meant to be a memorial. And so when we speak of setting up an Ebenezer stone, figuratively we're talking about setting up something in your life that reminds you of what God's done. Here we are at the end of 2014 and I want to encourage you in this, in this chapter as we go through this study uh, to look back and to not lose this opportunity uh, to remember what God's done. <coughs> I want to exhort and encourage you um, with this passage to, in the midst of challenges that we face in today's society, uh, we, have a lot of, we have a lot of subversive teachings, we have a lot of uh, opposition, we have a lot of worldly influences. We don't have to go seek it, it's in our faces. There's a lot that comes against the Christian life. And this passage is something that has been very encouraging to me to persevere in these latter days. Um, I know, for me personally, I've, uh, I, I've, I've seen um, a lot of people walk away from the Lord. A lot of people, as we're going to read in this passage, who have been distracted. And so we need this kind of encouragement. This is an invaluable passage also to point you to the truth that will give you focus and bring clarity in the midst of the struggles of life and that despite the struggles and maybe even doubt or worry, you can hold fast to the truth of what you do know because there are some things that we do not know. God has brought me personally, in my own spiritual journey, God has brought me through a season of, of doubt and a season of, of wondering and struggling because I'm someone who I like to debate. I like I love that our faith is reasonable, quite honestly. I love that we don't have to check our brain at the door when we come here to talk about God because what we believe actually does make sense. 
it actually stands up to history and to evidence and to science. It's not at odds with science. And so because of that, me personally, I've gone through, uh, as I'm a classic case of one of those things where the more you study and the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. And that's a place that I arrived this year, is realizing how much I don't know and, and having to come face to face with my own lack of knowledge and actually accepting the fact there's a lot of things God just simply doesn't tell us. Have you ever struggled with that before? It's, you know, we'd like, I'd love it if God would just paint it on the sky or write it on the wall. Wouldn't that be cool? You'd just go, do this. I'd be good with that. I'd be like, okay, I'll do that. I'm cool. You know, give me the instructions, I'll follow them. But God doesn't always work that way, does He? He doesn't always just paint it on the wall or write it in the sky. And there's many things, as we're going to read in this, in this scripture, uh, there's things that we're not told. There's things we may not understand. And that's inherent in the fact that we're finite. We have limits. We have limited knowledge, limited understanding, limited brain capacity. And God is infinite. There is no limit to his knowledge or power. So it stands to reason there will be some things he knows that we don't. And sometimes we as humans struggle with that. And that's something where this is one of those passages. You ever read God's word where it's like, man, this was written for me? This is one of those passages that God used in my life uh, recently uh, to really speak clearly to me uh, to this issue. And so I want to encourage you in that. And lastly, um, again, this is an opportunity. As we read through this, you'll notice how Paul concludes this chapter, or as, at least the chapters of, as we've made them, as he concludes his thought in this letter. He's encouraging Timothy in growth and to be faithful, to continue to grow, to pay attention, to, to look back at what God is doing and what he's, what he's done and what he's going to do. And that's what uh, I want to encourage you guys with. As we close 2014, some of you may be very happy to close 2014. Some of you may be like, no, kind of just stay that way. But you know what? We're closing it nonetheless, one way or another. Uh, we're saying goodbye to 2014 and stepping into a new year. And again, it can serve as a good milestone for us to remember and look at what God's done, look at His faithfulness and build upon that. Build, it can build our faith when we look at that. Also to look at how we've grown. Or it may be kind of painful to look back because you haven't grown. You may be looking back and going, wow, I don't want to do that again. And that might be your year. And that's okay. That's an opportunity to set up an Ebenezer stone in your life. Look at the mistakes you've made. You know, there's a place, as much as God has made us new, as much as God has set us free, there's a place for remembering the mistakes too. There's a, there's a purpose. And we see throughout Scripture, God talking about the children of Israel being a forgetful people. We see in Hebrews how we're reminded and in Corinthians we're told to learn from Israel's mistakes so that we don't repeat them. As, a, as the saying goes, if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. We don't want to repeat those mistakes. So it's good sometimes to have those sobering memories and go, you know what? I don't want to do that again. I don't want to have another year like this year. I want to have another month or a week like this one. It's time to grow. It's time to remember. And so... This is an awesome passage. There's a lot of great stuff in it. It's been very encouraging to me and I'm, I'm very thankful to be able to share with you what God <laughs> has shared with me. So please join me in prayer as we open up His Word. Heavenly Father, I thank You for this letter, Lord, for Your Word that You've preserved through the ages, Lord, that we would continue to have instruction, that we would continue to have a source of truth, a foundation upon which to stand. So I pray that You speak to each heart here this morning would help us to hear from you. I pray that you meet each person where they're at and you know exactly what we need. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, this is a letter to Timothy written by the Apostle Paul and is written to encourage him while he was leading in Ephesus. He was at a church in a place called Ephesus and he was there as a young pastor leader to hold the standard on truth, to hold the standard on what the correct doctrine was, to encourage the young church there. And so I want to back up a little bit before we get into chapter 4, I want to start actually in chapter 3, verse 14 to 16. So if you have your Bibles, if you want to join me there. Because in chapter 3, verse 14 to 16, Paul takes a quick pause from his letter. He's writing all these things, all these instructions, all of these issues that he's addressing, and then he stops for a second. In chapter 3, verse 14, he pauses to remind Timothy why he's writing the letter. Why am I giving this to you? Why am I telling you this? And so it sets a good foundation for what we're about to read in chapter 4. So if you join me in chapter 3, verse 14 to 16. It says, Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was justified by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up in glory. Wow, so he pauses from his instruction and says that he's hoping to come to see Timothy. He's hoping to come alongside him and encourage him and come see him. But Paul has a sense of urgency here. He's going, these issues, these things we need to address and talk about, they cannot wait for me to come see you. And I don't know what God has, I may not get to come see you. So I'm writing this letter so that I can be sure that you get this instruction that the Lord has passed to me. I need to pass to you. You need to know this stuff. And so Paul has a sense of urgency here. He's not willing to wait till he comes or risk the message not being delivered in case he's unable to come. So he writes this letter and he says, I'm hoping to come to you, but I want to make sure you get these instructions if I'm delayed so that you would know how people should conduct themselves in God's household. So... God's household. He goes on to clarify. This is a pretty powerful verse here, verse 15. He says, how to conduct themselves in God's household. He goes on to clarify what is God's household. He's not, is he referring to the temple? Is he referring to a specific synagogue or the church building they're using? How, do you, how are you supposed to act when you're there? No, he goes on to say, which is the church of the living God. Well, what is the church? That's you and me. That's us. That's the collective body of believers that have named the name of Christ. We've accepted that gift of salvation. We're the church. So with that comes a certain identity. What does it mean to be the church? What does that look like? It's, it actually does mean something, is what Paul's saying. There is a proper way to conduct yourself. There is proper doctrine. There's a standard for the church of God. There is a way to live. Because, he says in verse 15, the church of the living God is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Well, that's a tall order to live up to. <laughs> As you and me being the church in society, we're meant to be the pillar and foundation of truth. So what's he talking about there? Truth, I think the easiest way to understand it, most simple explanation is that it's the explanation that most accurately corresponds with reality. We've got to back up a minute and first of all ask the question and acknowledge where you stand with whether or not you even agree that there is truth. We have a lot of people today, they would argue that there is no truth or no absolute truth rather that everybody has their own version and that's okay. Um, I would disagree with that. 
God's word would disagree with that. God's word speaks very clearly to the issue that there is truth. There is absolute truth, which means there is right and there is wrong. There is good and there is evil. And it, it can be defined. And it's not up to me. It's not about whether you believe it or not. It's not. Whether I believe something or not does not make it any more or less true. Do you realize that? There's people who would disagree with that statement. And you know what? We have a lot of intellectuals and people who will try and argue you out of your faith. And if you don't know what you stand on, you can be easily shaken. So he's writing this letter for a reason. And, and he says in other letters, to him who thinks he stands, be careful. Take heed lest you fall. And so we need this encouragement. We need this instruction. But first we have to acknowledge the fact that there is truth. There is truth. And the church of God is to be that pillar and foundation of truth. In society, you know, this nation, I believe, was founded upon godly principles. It was founded on the very church of God. And that's one of the reasons we're so blessed, that we've been so blessed. And we're not, the, the church is not only the foundation, it's not only the ground or the basis of truth, it's the pillar. It's the integral a part of the entire building that holds it all together. Every aspect of truth comes from the Word of God. Every, every part of it is held together by it. But the word pillar is also used throughout Scripture not only as a key structural support, but we see that it's referred to as a monument or a point of reference. We look at, in the Old Testament, when Moses and the Israelites were going through the wilderness, what were they led by? A pillar of a cloud, a pillar of the cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, right? And we see that many times pillars were set up as, again, like those Ebenezer stones or as monuments to commemorate something that happened or something God did. And so this pillar is not only about talking about structural support, it's what holds it all together and holds it all up, but it's also talking about, it's a point of reference. We are meant to be that point of reference of truth in society where people look and go, okay, that's the basis of truth. That's what we can hold things up against and go, uh, is it true or not? Hold it up to the light, so to speak, and see if it adds up. Is it correct? Again, as a church of God, that's a pretty, that's a pretty tall order, isn't it? That's a tough thing to live up to. But that is the standard. And God's Word is the source. God's Spirit is the source. Going on in verse 16, it says, Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was justified by the Spirit, and seen by angels, preached among nations, was believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. And I love that in one, hand in hand, in the same breath, Paul speaks about truth and certainty, and then speaks about mystery, and something that he doesn't really even understand or know. And to me, that brings a lot of comfort. As I was struggling through some doubt and wrestling with some unknowns, and, and seeking God to speak clearly to me, and realizing that there are some things that I'll probably never know. And there's, there's things that God has chosen not to reveal to me or to any of us. And someday on the other side of eternity, maybe we will. And that's okay. But I love that Paul talks about how in the midst of the fact that we do have truth, we have something solid that we can count on, that we can look to, that we can compare with. There's also mystery. There's also certain things we do not know that we may not understand. And throughout the New Testament, Paul uses the word mystery to describe the gospel itself to describe God himself, that there are certain mysteries, there are certain things that are beyond our comprehension. And so he uses those things in the same breath. You know, and again, as I've, as I've come to realize, <laughs> the more that I know, the more I'm aware of what I don't know. But the more that I realize that, the more I have to let go of what I feel doesn't add up or work out on human terms. 
you know, again, because God's ways, as it says in his word, his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. How, how they're unsearchable, they're unknowable to us in some ways. And so what I've come to learn is that rather than obsess over and wrestle with the things that I'm not told, hold fast to what I do know. Hold fast to the truth we do have. And I believe that's one of the things Paul is encouraging Timothy in here, is there is some mystery, there's some things that yes, we may not quite understand or comprehend, but there is a standard and foundation of truth upon which we can stand very solidly. So here's some things I know for sure. Here's some conclusions I've come to and that we see in God's Word. First of all, I think that the evidence of the Creator is undeniable. I think, as it says in Romans 1.20, His invisible attributes, His, His infinite power is clearly seen in the things He has made. You look at you and I, you look at the earth itself. Just take this big rock we're on for a second. It's perfect size, it's perfect distance from the sun, it's per- perfect position in the universe. It would have the perfect range of temperatures in which we could survive. The fact that it has a perfect balance of gravity. The fact that water even exists and it's something upon which we depend and it's an integral part in, in life, it's sustaining life itself. And there's so many things that are in a perfect balance. The laws of nature. You know, when you talk to science who is of the evolutionary line of thinking, the fact that there are laws at all doesn't make sense to them. They go, really, what would make a lot more sense is if everything was completely random. As if, as if things would just kind of spontaneously compare, appear and disappear and change. That would be more consistent with a godless universe. But the fact that we have such order and structure and design, that there's laws that everything must submit to and follow, tells you there's a designer. Tells you there's a grand architect. There's an infinite power and infinite wisdom behind this whole setup. And so I believe that one of the truths we can hold on to, as is said in Scripture, that he is clearly seen, that he, his existence and, and much of who he is is clearly seen in what he has made. Also, not only what he has made, but in the lives he has changed. I see God in, in each one of you, in people. I see how people have come from horrible lives of brokenness and how, how God in a moment has restored them. There's a, a movie that's come out just recently called Unbroken. Any of you seen that? We've seen the movie. I haven't seen it yet. I've heard that it's pretty good. I haven't seen it yet, but it's about someone who went through some pretty horrific things in war, World War One. How he survived 47 days on a raft uh, after his plane was shot down, and then survived uh, for years in a in a prison camp. Was tortured, went through some pretty horrific things. And the movie's called Unbroken because it talks about how he went through all that and remained unbroken, remained strong. And he held on to hope. But um, Franklin Graham did a bit of a follow-up on, on this person. Uh, his name's Louis. I forget his last name. I forgot to put it in my notes here. But uh, some of you know, I'm sure, who I'm talking about. What is his name? Zambrini. That's it. And what's interesting is he remained unbroken through all of that. But then coming back, he was broken by sin. He was broken by his own addictions to alcohol. And he was broken by his uh, walking away from the Lord. He was in bondage. Uh, his real brokenness and bondage came after he, he was set free from the war. And what's interesting is that in 1949, he went to a, a tent revival with Billy, one of Billy Graham's tent revivals in L.A. And in a moment, he was set free. 
In a moment, his life was changed and he was able to leave all of those nightmares and fears and struggles and trauma from war. He was able to dump his alcohol down the drain, throw his cigarettes away, and start a fresh new life in which God made him a new creation. Undeniable what God can do in the life of someone who lets him in. And so, as I said, there's much that we can hold on to in evidence and truth. The Bible itself, I encourage you, I don't have time to go into it this morning, but this Bible itself that we have to read in our laps is miraculous. The fact that we have this letter preserved for us, the fact that we can go back and look and compare with thousands of manuscripts and know that it has remained unchanged for thousands of years. The fact um, that it's prophetic evidence, archaeological evidence, scientific evidence, secular historical writings all support what it says. There is no other document in human history that can stand up to this Bible. And when you take some time to study not just the Bible itself, but about the Bible, you will be blown away. And I know one of the pivotal points in my life, in my faith, was when I, being raised in the church, I was raised a Christian, I grew up in it, and that presents its own challenges. Because you don't really have a before to compare to. You don't really have this dramatic life change. And I struggled with that, quite honestly. I'm like, I don't have this huge, I was rescued from this moment. And there came a point in my life where I just realized I need to make this my own. I need to believe in God. I need to follow Him, not because my parents said so or because that's all I've ever heard. I need to just do some of my own digging. And when I went to Bible college for two years, I, t- I made a point to take a lot of extracurricular studies about the documents and the history and about the facts and secular writings, kind of do some of my own digging as to how valid is this document? How valid is it? Can I trust in it? If I want to base my life around it, what, is, what evidence is there? Is it truly just blind faith? Well, I'm pleased to report that it's not blind faith and that it's incredibly reasonable. And when you compare the Bible to the next closest reasonably accurate document, name one, religious one, a famous uh, um, um, cultural writing, whatever, pick, pick something. It, it is so incredibly leagues ahead in, in the consistency, in the evidence, in the accuracy there's just, it's, it, blew, it blew me away, really, when I found out how incredible the Bible really is. So I encourage you to take the time to study it because it is something we can hold fast to. The Bible does give us a lot of instruction about character and God's plan for His people. So again, I want to encourage you. There's going to be confusion. There's going to be doubts. There's going to be struggles. Hold fast to the truth. Don't waste time chasing after the things God doesn't tell you. You know, it's okay to struggle a little bit, but you can, and you can get stronger because of it. And Paul is going to go on in chapter 4, verse 1, to tell us why he's setting this foundation, why he's taking this pause, to tell Timothy why he's writing this letter. So in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, The Spirit clearly says that in latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. I truly believe we're in those latter days. I think it's obvious. I know several people, I can think of off the top of my head, people I grew up with, um, guys and girls who went to high school youth group with me, went on mission trips to Mexico and Ireland and various places and have now completely abandoned their faith. They've completely walked away from the Lord exactly as Paul's describing here, and have been distracted and deceived by the world. And as a matter of fact, I know some of them have set up 
Facebook pages for the sole purpose of debating people and undermining people's faith. And it's just heartbreaking. I had lunch with one a while back and just to hear him talk about how he really had sort of this condescending superior superiority complex of, really? You still believe in God? Okay. It's good for you. I mean, it's just, it's just sad how he's caught up in that and how he's succumbed to that. And and I know, uh, and as I, as I got on Facebook and saw some of these groups popping up, I was surprised to see how many names I recognized of people who uh, were on there with the purpose of undermining people's faith. People who I, I used to do Bible studies with, we went on mission trips with, we, we preached the gospel together. Uh, it blew me away. And so, this should be a sober warning for us. This should be a very sober warning for us to, as he says in another letter, to him who thinks he stands, take heed lest you fall. Don't, don't let these deceiving, these deceiving spirits in. Don't entertain this stuff. As much as our faith is not a blind faith, and yes, study, and yes, we don't have to be afraid of anything because we have the truth. At the same time, it can get easy to get so wrapped up in these debates and in these uh, intellectual uh, battles uh, to where you spend all your time searching out and studying the lie and you neglect studying the truth. And that's honestly one of the places I went. That's one of the areas where I ended up. And, and, I, and I struggled for a while and God really brought me through it is because I got all in the minutiae and in the weeds of all that stuff and running down all these deceptive rabbit trails and, and then in, because of the neglect of the truth, seeds of doubt begin to spring up. And our mind is a lot like a garden. I've heard it said, whether you tend it or neglect it, it's going to bring something forth. And if you plant the truth in it, that's what will grow. If you spend all your time obsessing over lies and, and putting out fires and disproving this and disproving that, and yet you neglect, for the, and you neglect the truth, truth for the sake of that, you've made a mistake. And I've made that mistake. And I want to encourage you, as Paul is encouraging Timothy, be warned by this, hold fast to the truth. And he's speaking of people who are in the church itself, he says, these hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared with a hot iron. And it's, 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 it's a classic picture of someone who is not shocked by evil anymore. They've played with fire too long, and now they've been seared as with a hot iron. You know, in training up my children, as a Christian parent, you struggle with how much do you shelter them from the world and protect them from the things you don't want them to be exposed to. At the same time, how do you equip them to face a world that is utterly opposed to the Lord? How do you make, the, how do you make them ready so that they're not blown away by it when they're confronted with it? At the same time, how do you protect and shelter them? You know, and I've come to the conclusion that I feel very strongly and clearly that I'd rather have them see evil and be shocked by it than be used to it. You know, and I think in society uh, where it's constantly in our face, it's easy to get numb to it, isn't it? It's easy to kind of go, oh, another person got killed today. And you don't even think about it. Or you see just utterly despicable things in the news, on TV, or spoken by some 13-year-old and you're just used to it. You're numb to it. And I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you. Search your heart. It's okay to be shocked by evil. It's okay to not be socialized in that manner. It's okay to see that stuff and go, ah, that's horrible. It should make you sick. It makes God sick. And we want our heart to be broken with the things that break God's heart. 
We want to hate the things he hates and love the things he loves, don't we? That's what a Christian is. That's who we are. And so, I want that not only for myself, but also for my children. And this is what he's encouraging here. Do not let your conscience be seared. Let these things shock you. It should be. Hold fast to the truth of what is true and what is right. You know, um, in speaking of these deceptions, there's a a little parable (coughs) that I came across one time. It's about Satan and a demon walking along one day and they see a man. And the man, as he's walking along, stops, bends over and picks up a shiny object. And the demon goes, well, what was that? And Satan goes, oh, he found a piece of truth. And the demon starts freaking out. Well, let's go take it from him. We don't want that. And Satan goes, I don't know. It's, it's okay. I'll just encourage him to make a religion out of it. You know, according to Wikipedia, there's over 4,200 different religious sects today. At least accounted for. There's probably a lot more. So many people deceived and and pulled away and distracted by all these little pieces of truth. And we're going to see in the scripture today uh, Paul talking about the danger of having a piece of truth. We're going to talk about the importance of understanding how to, how to read and understand God's word. But we live in a world where there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of versions of the truth. There's a lot of truth mixed up with all kinds of things. And now more than ever, we need to know how to discern it. We need to know the truth well. We need to be able to recognize it, to discern from good and evil. So verse 3, he goes on in chapter 4, verse 3, he goes on to specifically speak to some issues that were happening in the church in that day and time. So they forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything, for everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God in prayer. You know, we have religious organizations today that forbid marriage. This isn't just something for that day and time. Uh, There there are churches and organizations that forbid being married as a qualification for leadership. And that's not of God. It's, 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 It's dangerous, it's foolish. God designed marriage. It was God's idea. And it's a beautiful, amazing thing when done His way. It's, it's, it's meant to be that way. And quite honestly, I think it should be the opposite. It should be a, a prerequisite to leadership in many ways, to be married. But they had that same issue back then. Abstaining from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. You know, back then, there were there in the church, they had the Jews and the Gentiles coming together for the first time, and there was a struggle. And this is one of those verses that it's important we understand context. This is where a little bit of truth can be dangerous. I know people who would love to make a t-shirt, probably have made a t-shirt with this verse on it saying, everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. And that's license to kill. It's like, okay, I can party, I can do whatever I want. As long as I thank God for it, I'm good. That's not what he's saying here. This isn't the spiritual blank check. You know, and you see people in alcohol addictions, drug addictions, and this is their excuse. This is their scripture reference. They know it good, man. They got, it. They got the verse and everything down know where it's found. And they say, hey, everything God created is good. It's all good. I thank God for it. I'm cool. No. You've got to understand what's being said here. You've got to understand context. You've got to understand it in light of the rest of the truth of God's Word. And for this particular issue, the Jews were trying to put burdens 
man-made traditions and laws on the Gentile believers in the church. They're going, hey, wait, this isn't fair. We've been the special people. We've got all this time. We've got all these laws and all these things we do to please God. And you come in and just believe and now we're on the same level of playing field? So with that, they felt a little, little cheated, a little like, man, this isn't fair. And so they're trying to impose these laws and these rules and these burdens on the Gentile believers. And Paul's like, no, we're set free. We're under a new covenant now. That old one's gone. We have this freedom. But we need to understand that with this liberty also comes responsibility. And we're going we're gonna to read on and I'm going to go through some verses where Paul continues to clarify what we're to do with this liberty. But we're told in Scripture our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, are they not? Which means we're to be good stewards of them. We're, we're to bring them honor and we're to be sober-minded. We're to think clearly. We're not to be doing anything that, that prevents us from thinking clearly. We're not to be gluttons. You know, and we're not to play with fire. We're not to play with temptation. We're going to be told later on what the standard is of conduct and some of these things, as Paul said, is the reason he's writing the letter. But we're not supposed to play around and flirt with things. Just because we have the liberty doesn't mean that we're supposed to take advantage and at the expense of not only ourselves, but others. You know, um, as the late great crocodile hunter used to say, I'm a fan of Steve Irwin. He was a good guy. We're kindred spirits. I like to catch creatures and tame them, especially dangerous ones. I had the reputation when I was in Australia as being called the crocodile hunter, but he had a thing that he used to say. Usually when he was holding some sort of poisonous arachnid or some incredibly venomous snake, he would talk about how, you know, this, this thing with one bite could kill 30 blokes my size. You know, and he would, he would go on to say about how dangerous it was. And then he'd give his classic disclaimer of don't do this at home. And he'd go, if you see something like this, don't muck with it. You know, and he would talk about, you know, you don't, I'm a professional. You know, he, he would always talk about that, right? Well, sin is the same way. Don't muck with it. Don't play with it. And I wish Wilma was here with her Australian accent. She's good at it. But, uh, don't play with sin. We're told in Scripture to resist the devil, but we're not told to play with sin. We're told to flee from it. We're told to run from it. Have a healthy fear and respect for your own weakness. And so I'm going to move over to, to Corinthians, to the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and he talks about this very issue to clarify. Listen, Paul's not saying here, because we have the liberty, just go off and do whatever you like. Thank the Lord for it, and it's all good. Not only for our own spiritual health, but for others as well. 1 Corinthians 10.23, if you'd like to follow along. It says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do, to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. In this time... And in previous chapters, he's talking about, also in chapter 8, he specifically spoke a lot about food offered to idols. And there was a big controversy in the church at that time of whether or not they should eat food if it had been offered to idols. And it was being sold now in the marketplace. And they're picking it apart and going, hey, was this offered to idols? And they're trying to figure it out and making an obsessing over this. And Paul's going, you know what? In chapter 8, he talks a lot about it. He goes, you know what? These idols, first of all, they're nothing. The idols are nothing. They're false gods. It's a piece of wood. It's a piece of metal. It's nothing. And you know what? Just eat it. It's okay. Give thanks to the Lord. Don't go chasing things down to the nth degree trying to figure out whether or not this was offered to idols. Just receive it 
and give thanks to the Lord. And so that's what he's speaking about and what he came off of when he says he finds this meat in the market. Don't raise questions. Don't search out. Just eat it. Give thanks to the Lord. For the earth, verse 26, is the Lord's and everything in it. But if an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever's put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for both the sake of the one who told you and the sake of conscience. You know, this is kind of like, um, you know, if we, in our, in our modern day and age, you have a company that blatantly stands for something that's ungodly. They put it out there. They put it in our face. At that point, we have, we have, we have a choice to make. It's not that I want to search out every company I buy something from and every, every, every uh, drop of gas I buy and go, what does this company invest in and who do they support? And I spend all the, I could obsess over every aspect of, of whether or not they do something ungodly. Chances are they do somewhere. Um, but if a company blatantly propagates, promotes something that's completely contrary to God's word, waves it in our face and goes, I'll buy my product anyway, then I've got a choice. Then I've got a choice to go, you know what? I'm not going to support that. I can go without that latte. I can go without that particular product because that's something I have now. I'm responsible for that knowledge now. It's been put in my face and as a Christian, I've got a standard to set. If I'm the pillar and foundation of truth in society, what do I stand for anyway? You know, and so that's what he's talking about here. If someone tells you this was offered to idols, they go, you know what? No thanks. Because now you're making a statement about what you believe about idols. And that's what he's saying here. Is when it's been told you clearly, then don't eat it for conscience sake. Verse, verse 28. This has been offered in sacrifice and do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you, for the sake of conscience. I'm referring, verse 29, to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? This is speaking directly to those who would say in the verses we just read in, in Timothy, oh, look, I just thank God because it says everything's God's and as long as I receive it with thankfulness, I'm good. Paul's clarifying that right here. He says, if I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? He says, so whatever you eat or drink... Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God. Even as I try to please everyone in, my, in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. You know, Paul said in another passage, he said, if it causes my brother to stumble, if I eat meat, I will no longer eat meat. Not that I don't have the liberty to eat meat, but if it prevents the gospel from going forth, if it causes someone to reject Christ, because they're not there yet, either in their walk with Christ or because they're not saved yet. I'd rather see the gospel not hindered. And I'll go without something that I have every right to do for the sake of, 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 of the gospel, for the sake of the Lord. And so this is where the new covenant, in some ways, holds us far above the old covenant. The old covenant and its hundreds and thousands of rules and regulations, all these laws, were actually held to an even higher standard, and that's the law of love, which says, what is in the best interest of my neighbor? What is going to help them know the Lord better? What is going to not hinder them from coming to know the Lord? That's the standard now. Not this massive list. I'm not under this huge burden. But now I'm free to serve and love God. And I'm not under this same bondage. So it's a whole different covenant. It's a whole different idea. And God, from the very beginning, wasn't He only ever interested in our hearts anyway? It wasn't about this list. It wasn't about fulfilling all these things. God wanted it to be from the heart. And that's the point. 
So going back to 1 Timothy, picking up back in verse 6, it says, If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you'll be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truth of faith and the good teaching that you have followed. Have little to do with good... Oh, wait a minute. It doesn't say little, does it? Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. So he speaks pretty clearly to what he thinks about wasting any time on rumors and gossip and, and, and worthless criticism, all of these things that we can spend so much time on and get it all caught up in. He says, waste no time on that stuff. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness is value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. So we got a little bit of bad news here. Training. That means work. That means we actually play a part in this. That means we don't get to just kind of sit back and go, Good God, fix me. And He does everything. That's, that's not how it works, is it? The spiritual life is, is a two-part process. Yes, God does the saving, but we have to accept the gift, don't we? That's how it starts. It starts with us taking a step towards Him as well. And then the spiritual journey is not just about God working in us, but it's about us also training. It's about, just like, just, just like in life, it's easily compared, and it's many times compared in Scripture to competing as an athlete. You have to train. If you want to compete and win, you have to train. That takes work. It takes discipline. It takes a lifestyle. And that's what he's talking about is a Christian lifestyle. How do you conduct yourself as a Christian? It takes discipline, spiritual exercise. To get your muscles strong, you have to use them. Spiritual life is no different. To become strong spiritually, you have to use your spiritual gifts. You have to be praying. You have to be in His Word. Otherwise, you become a spiritual weakling, just like someone who never exercises, never, never takes care of their body. You become fat, you become out of shape. Spiritually, you, it takes discipline, it takes work. And being a Christian is also compared to being a warrior. Again, got news for you. When you become a Christian, you just stepped onto a battlefield. Whether you recognize it or not, you're a warrior. You're in a spiritual battle, which means you need to train if you don't want to get beat up and, and thrown off to the side. If you want to be able to have victory, you need to train. You need to put on your armor, as it says in Ephesians. We need to be prepared for the spiritual battle because we're in it. Recognize it or not, you're in it. The question is, are you being victorious? Are you making progress? Are you taking ground or not? Or are you being beaten back? Understand also that you're not in it alone. One of the critical elements, I believe, is fellowship and discipleship, which means you have a trainer, and you have someone you're training. You're being mentored and you're mentoring. We need to be able to give as much as we need to be able to receive. Growing in Christ, it's just like that, that picture of a lake that has an inlet and an outlet. What happens if there's no outlet? It becomes stagnant and stinky. And you're only a stagnant and stinky Christian because you've got no outlet. Yes, you've got all this inlet and all this stuff coming in, but where are you serving? Where are you giving? There is no dead weight in the body of Christ. If you're a member of the church, you have, a, you have a purpose. You have a gift. You have a calling. You have a use and God can use you in many ways. Probably ways you never thought. There's no such thing as someone who's in the church just to watch. 
you have a place and you have a purpose. It may be the toe, maybe the eye, maybe the nose, whatever it is though, step up to it. If someone's saying to you, hey, you know, you seem to be really good at this, you have a gift in this, don't take it lightly, jump in, see what God does. Search out and develop your gifts as Paul instructs Timothy to do. Train in godliness. Exercise in it. Verse 10. That is, <laughs> that is why we labor and strive. Because we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all people and especially of those who believe. And here is a clear reinforcement of John 3.16. A clear clarification to those who would say Jesus died only for a specific set of people. There's just the elect or the chosen or the few. It says here clearly, the Savior of all people. His price that he paid, his death was sufficient for every single person, past, present, and future. Now obviously, as he says, especially for those who believe, you have to receive it. It doesn't do you much good if you reject it, does it? The gift is there, but you have to receive it. He's not going to force it on you. He's not going to kick your door down. He's going to knock. He's going to offer and you have to receive it. But it is available and sufficient for all. Make no mistake, God's word clearly teaches Jesus made the gift of salvation available to every single person. Verse 11. <clears throat> suggest and teach these things. Oh wait, it doesn't say suggest, does it? It says command. Just make sure you're paying attention here. Command and teach these things. Speak it boldly. Declare it is what Paul is saying. He's saying, listen, don't be wishy-washy on this stuff. This isn't my opinion. This isn't your opinion. This is God's word. This is truth we're talking about here. Again, going back to the premise of what he's saying. We're talking about truth. We're talking about the standard. We're talking about the foundation and the pillars of the whole thing. This is non-negotiable. This is, this is what you command and teach. Speak it boldly. Declare it. But he doesn't say just command it, he says teach it, which indicates there's got to be discipleship, there's got to be coaching, there's got to be teaching involved, there's got to be that raising up. Discipleship is an essential part. Mentorship is an essential part of the body of Christ. There's a little Christmas story that I thought I'd share with you that illustrates the importance of discipleship. Um, and it uses the proverbial little Johnny to illustrate the point. We've all heard of little Johnny, right? Classic. We learned a lot from this guy. I hope he learns his lesson someday. So, little Johnny went to his mother demanding a new bicycle for Christmas. And his mother decided that he should take a look at himself and the way he acts. And so she said, well, Johnny, you know, it is Christmas, but we don't have the money to just go out and buy anything you want. So why don't you write a letter to Jesus and pray for one instead? After his temper tantrum, his mother sent him to his room he finally, eventually, sat down to write a letter to Jesus, and this is what he wrote. He said, Dear Jesus, I've been a good boy this year and would appreciate a new bicycle. Your friend, Little Johnny. Now, Little Johnny knew that Jesus really knew what kind of boy he was, a brat. So, he ripped up the letter and decided to give it another try. Dear Jesus, I've been an okay boy this year, and I want a new bicycle. Yours truly, Little Johnny. Well, little Johnny knew this wasn't totally honest, so he tore it up and tried again. Dear Jesus, I've thought about being a good boy this year. Can I have a new bicycle? Signed, little Johnny. Well, little Johnny looked down deep in his heart, which was what his mother really wanted, and he crumpled up the letter and threw it in the trash can and went outside. 
He aimlessly wandered about, depressed because of the way he treated his parents, and really considering his actions. And he finally found himself in front of a Catholic church. So little Johnny went inside and knelt down, looking around, not knowing what he should really do. Little Johnny finally got up and began to walk out the door. And he was looking at all of the statues. All of a sudden, he grabbed a small one and ran out the door and ran home and hid it under his bed. And then he read this, then he wrote this letter. Jesus, I've broken most of the Ten Commandments. I've shot spitwads in school, I tore up my sister's doll, and lots more. I'm desperate. I've got your mama. And if you ever want to see her again, give me a bike. <laughs> Signed, you know who. <laughs> so his mother's effort in training, unfortunately, fell a little short. <laughs> But, you know, it also illustrates the point that when it comes to spiritual growth, we're all a work in progress and, you know, it's not something that happens right away, is it? We shouldn't be shocked when we see someone who's just been rescued from a life of sin. They've been trained by the world all their life and then we see them blow it again. We shouldn't be shocked by that. We should be right there to pick them up. You know, he doesn't yet know how to live as a godly man or woman. Sometimes we can get that attitude, like, come on, you got saved yesterday. Aren't you perfect yet? <laughs> like me. <laughs> right. No, it's a process. And so the question is never, are you perfect yet? And again, even though the bar is set very high, and that we don't compromise the standard, we also have to realize that if you're still breathing, we know the answer to the question, are you perfect yet? And it's, no. And you know what? You're never going to be. But is it obvious what you're pursuing? Is it obvious what your goal is? Is it obvious that you're growing? And that's what Paul is getting at here. Verse 12 says, Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example to the believers. This is part of that discipleship. Set an example to the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Wow, again, a very tall order. But again, this is the order. Make no mistake, this is the goal. And we know, again, we live in a society... It's very tolerant, and that we tend to want to adjust the bar, don't we? To make ourselves feel better. We want to go, ah, well, it's okay. If we don't quite do this, that's good enough. And then we settle in. And that's not what we're supposed to do. As the body of Christ, there is no settling in. Because the bar is set so high, it is in a place where we've got to realize we're never going to achieve it, which means we're always pursuing it. We're always moving towards it. And that's why he goes on to talk about how growth is the key. You know, I think that he talks about, he says, don't look on, let anyone look on you because you're young. You know, I think this can also apply to those who are young in the faith. While God's word clearly warns not to promote someone who's young in the faith too quickly to a position of leadership, it's never too soon to begin participating in the body of Christ and to begin letting God use you. And quite honestly, many times, it's the passion of a young believer that is just the conviction that an old believer needs to get moving. But Paul goes on to say, he says, Until I come, verse 13, devote yourself to public reading of Scripture, to preaching and teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. This verse uh, really is quite personal to me. Honestly, I've been guilty of neglecting my gift. And I know... um, Actually, when I was about 15 years old, uh, someone 
came to me, a leader in the church, and said that they felt I was going to be a pastor and that God was going to use me that way. I vehemently denied it. <laughs> and I, quite honestly, never wanted to pursue it. I walked away from it for a long time. And yet here I am. Obviously, God had a different plan. And God has done great things in my life. And I want to encourage you. God has a calling. Again, there is no one in the body of Christ that is dead weight. You have a gift, use it. God has put someone in your life to, to, to mentor, to disciple, to invest in. Invest in them. God has put someone in your life that you can learn from. Learn from them. Step out. Be a part of the body of Christ. This isn't something you attend. This is something you're part of. And don't neglect the gift. As he was, he was exhorting Timothy, give yourself to it. Don't neglect it. Verse 15. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. And so, as we wrap this up, as we wrap up 2014, this is one of the main things I want to leave you with and encourage you with. Pay attention. Stop for a minute. Take the time to look back. What happened this year? What did you do? What did God do? How was your walk? Was your progress evident to everyone who sees you? You may look back and go, ah, ouch, that's, don't want to do that again. That might be your story for this year. Or you might look back and go, man, I'm so encouraged. But if you didn't stop and take the time to look back, you wouldn't be so encouraged. You can get so lost in the weeds and the busyness of life. And I honestly, I'm convinced that one of, that's one of Satan's biggest tactics is busyness and distraction. If he can just keep us busy and distracted, he can completely take us out of the game. He can have us so busy chasing shiny objects and keeping up with the tyranny of the urgent uh, that we never take the time to see what he's doing, to join him in the work that he's doing all around us, to see how he has answered prayer after all and see how he is working. Take the time. Set up that Ebenezer stone as you close out this year and look at what can you learn from? What did God do? Has God indeed been faithful? He has. I guarantee it. And how can that influence your faith going forward? How can you build upon that going forward? How can 2015 be something where you can look back when you get to the end of it and say that your progress was evident to all? Watch your life and doctrine closely. And lastly, persevere in them because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. You know, the world is watching. He started off by talking about how we the church are the foundation and pillar of truth. In this world, God has chosen us to be his ambassadors. It's, it's, it is a tall order. It's a tough thing. But you know what? If we persevere in these things, we're not only saving ourselves, but those who see us. People will see us and people will come to the Lord. People will be saved. People will be raised up. People will be built up. And that's what the body of Christ is about. So as we close 2014, I encourage you, take the time, seek the Lord. See what He shows you. Ask Him to speak to you. Take, take the painful things with the good things. Learn from them. Don't repeat the mistakes. Build, build on them. Grow. And we have a good next year to look forward to. Amen? So please join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You for this year, for this year You've given a year in which you've done many things. Lord, I look back, <clears throat> and it's been quite a year. A lot has happened. I know in my own life, there's been some big changes, some big steps, some growth, some big decisions. And Lord, I'm excited for what you're going to do in this coming year. 
And Lord, I want to be able to look back and remember the things you've taught me. And I pray for each person here. Lord, open their eyes. Speak to them. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who has not started their journey with you, that today would be that day. Today would be the place where they set up that monument in their lives where they can always look back and go, that's the day. Just like Louis Zampini, who, who has that day in that tent in 1949 where he accepted Christ and that was his milestone where he can look back and see how you changed his life forever. If there's anyone here who has not yet taken that step to accept the gift of salvation, I pray that they would not leave this place today without doing so. So Lord, we look forward to your plan and purpose in our lives. We look forward to seeing the progress and the growth to learning from the mistakes and picking each other up. We thank you for your word and how faithful it is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.